Geopolitics and Empire is joined by Bill Blaine, who is the strategist for Shard Capital, a leading investment management firm. He is an author and commentator on financial markets. You can find his daily musings at morningporridge.com. Thanks for joining the podcast, Bill. How was vacation? Uh, well, I did finally get a week off last week and I went to the Spanish Balearic Islands. And uh, unlike most people who were still spending time on the beach, my wife and I went for long walks in the mountains, but basically from good restaurant to good restaurant. And I've got to say, I'm now an, I have an addiction for a really good suckling pig. Oh, I, I can, I, I bet, <laughs> I think I need to take a week off uh, as well. So now that you've hopefully been able to cl clear your head a bit uh, and recharge, uh, I thought we could start by kind of getting your big picture of where the global economy is today and what's worrying you the most. Uh, in your second to last morning porridge, Missive, you, you were discussing inflation, the energy crisis, uh, shortages in the supply chain, collapse, record employment, coupled with record vacancies, to name a few. Uh, this morning, you, you, you published uh, another piece on Morning Porridge where you were discussing the threat of central bank uh, policies. So what's most pressing uh, on your mind at the moment? Well, you know, we, we've, we've got a whole series of things going on in the financial markets, uh, and you can call them potential storms on the horizon. And that would include things about whether the global economy is heading towards a recession or is this going to be very temporary and is, is it going to result in a minor blip and then we'll see the pandemic recovery continue? Or is the global supply chain crisis, which we are seeing uh, very physically in terms of the number of ships queued up at ports, the shortages of goods all around the problem, the chip all around the world, the chip shortage, is that going to continue to deepen because of all the consequences of what went on during the pandemic? Um, I think one of the big, the biggest issues is, are we facing inflation? Yes, we are. And could that potentially become stagflation? Yes, it could. Uh, and one of the real issues I'm having trouble to understand just now is what the central banks are talking about. Uh, when they talk about transitory inflation, that's a really quite dangerous concept. Because when you say transitory, this is not going to last. It encourages people to think that inflation isn't the, the price rises they've just seen are not real. And, and the justification that the central bankers are using for that is that take a look at lumber. Back at earlier in 2021, lumber prices in the US staged an enormous spike on the basis everyone started hoarding lumber on the expectation it would become scarce. But the result was when everyone hoarded lumber, we very quickly discovered that nobody actually needed that much wood. And the result was the price very quickly went down. And that's being used to explain that inflation is transitory. But once you say that and prices go up, they tend to be very sticky. It's unusual to get that lumber situation where prices come down very quickly. Sticky prices means that transitory inflation ends up by default becoming permanent inflation. And all you've done is you've lockstep the economy into a new thing. We've also got a whole series of other problems going on. You've got all these global trade tensions. You've got all the questions getting asked about just how much government debt expanded during the pandemic, 
And then, of course, you've got the consequences of 12 years of, of quantitative easing and ultra-low interest rates, which have distorted markets and caused markets to be overvalued. If interest rates are low, it tends to push up the price of all financial assets, not just bonds. But here's the thing. All these things are just the normal to and fro of markets. Markets can generally cope with these things happening. We can cope with an inflation threat. We can cope with trade uh, dysfunctionality. We can cope with all these things happening. What we can't cope with, though, are policy mistakes, because we don't get a choice when it comes to how central banks and government act. And so I think my big concern at the moment isn't so much the normal hubble-bubble toil and trouble of markets. It's more that governments around the world are going to get it badly wrong, and that central banks, as they inevitably do, make bad decisions. Now, I'm not saying that they're making bad decisions because they're idiots. They're making bad decisions because they need to make a choice between bad decisions and worse decisions. And, and let me give you an example of that. As I said earlier, all financial assets are overpriced just now because of the consequences of ultra-low interest rates. Um, we have to normalize interest rates to get the global economy functioning again, because one of the results of ultra-low interest rates is not that people go and borrow loads of money to build new productive factories and new manufacturing capabilities or create new jobs. Uh -uh. No, what actually happens when people have too low interest rates is they borrow loads of money and go and buy their own stock back, pushing up the price of the stock, which inflates stock and makes stock look more attractive. So people come out of low-yield bonds and go into stock, pushing up the price. And all these companies that aren't actually producing anything more, but have actually increased their leverage, the executives get bigger bonuses and think they're geniuses because they bought their stock buyback. You've actually increased the sum of human um, wealth by effectively zero. And as we're seeing, when these companies eventually do fail, you've wiped all that money out and just left the company with more debt. So you know, low interest rates have genuine market consequences. And of course, they also keep companies that really should go into default alive, the so-called zombies. And so it actually affects the functioning of market economies. So the first thing I'd say is it would be a policy mistake not to normalize interest rates to try and create all these consequences of low interest rates. But if you were to push up interest rates at a time when the world faces enormous supply chain problems, you have a potential recession, pushing up rates will simply push us into that recession and probably cause a market crash which would result in lower confidence amongst consumers and businesses, creating more problems. So you got yet another uh, policy mistake situation. Which one do you go with? Do you go with the long-term one, which is to normalize rates and bear the consequences now, or do you continue to support markets? That's the one that uh, central banks have to deal with. But possibly the bigger policy mistake is on the side of governments. Uh, and you can see that very clearly here in the UK, where um, the 
Bank of England is calling for interest rates to rise to combat inflation. And the Chancellor of the Exchequer, he's the guy who runs our money, he's saying that he wants to increase taxes and reduce spending, in other words, introduce austerity, in order to get the government's heavy borrowing back on schedule. Now, the thing is, the UK has actually been very successful through the whole coronavirus pandemic, because very quickly we established a furlough scheme where workers who were laid off continued to get paid, thus keeping these companies going. Companies were able to borrow loads and loads of very cheap government money to keep themselves functional through the pandemic. And the result is unemployment did not spike. Everyone was on money and the economy opened very strongly before it started to run into the headwinds of supply chains. And the really interesting thing is that despite all that money that the government was spending and borrowing from the market, the yield on UK government bonds, which we call gilts, actually fell, which suggests that the market was very comfortable with what the UK government was doing. And that's been true around the whole globe. We've seen governments very successfully print money to keep themselves going, to keep their nations going during the pandemic. It rather hints that the ideas of new monetary policy in terms of being able to borrow at ultra-low interest rates to stimulate economies are not as bad as we thought they were. Now, clearly, if you borrow loads of money, you do have to pay it back, but governments can do that by using the same trick. The only governments that are likely to ever go bust by borrowing loads of money are the ones that don't own the keys to their own printing presses. And that would be countries, as we well know in Latin America, where countries have borrowed in dollars and then, of course, been unable to pay because their currencies have collapsed relative to the dollar, creating a cycle of debt defaults. But any country that does own the keys to its own printing presses, like the UK, when we run out of money to repay our debt, we just print some more. Now, the worry is, of course, that, that brings down the value of the currency because people lose confidence in the government. But if every single government in the, in the globe is doing it, then why not continue to do it? What the government, though, has done is it's decided to introduce austerity, hike taxes, cut payments to the poorest people in society. And of course, we currently have this massive energy crunch going on in Europe, where gas prices, which is the main source of our fuel, have gone up by a factor of 400%. So the outlook in the UK and for the whole of Europe, incidentally, is much higher prices, fuel poverty, and increasing uncertainty about how governments are going to deal with this. So, I mean, that's a rather rambling sort of start to what I see the threats of the economy being. I'm not so worried about the market stuff. It's central banks and especially governments making big mistakes. And I haven't even started to talk about what's going on in the USA. Well, that, that was sort of my, my, my next question. You read my mind. Uh, you recently as well wrote that you said the U.S. system looks in crisis and that everyone is 
running for the dollar, thinking it's the flight to safety trade. Um, some people talk even about uh, hyperinflation. Uh, you, this morning, you suggested uh, the U.S. is headed for a deep recession that would affect the U.K. I've had guests on uh, renowned um, investors uh, and, and names and, and analysts, and you have a very measured uh, approach from, you know, I, I read your material and your analysis is pretty measured, but I have some analysts that say, you know, it's hyperinflation, crack up, boom, the, the end of the world. Uh, how do you see, you know, how bad can things get as a result of uh, central bank policies? Uh, you talked about the correction, you know, how, how bad, what, what are we looking at? Um, oh, okay, right. Well, look, the, the first thing you've got to do when you've spent as much time in markets as I have, you know, 37 years now, you got to understand that things are never, ever as bad as you think they're going to be. So cut the hyperbole. Even in the worst crash, and the worst one I've ever seen was the Lehman moment, even when things were that bad, it's never going to get as bad as the uh, hyperbolic um, analysts and the newspaper headlines suggest. It's always an opportunity to make great money. Uh, you just go in and you look to see where people are most fearful, and that's where you jump in. So Blaine's mantra number one is things are never as bad as you think they're going to be. Mantra number two is, but they're never as good as you hope they're going to be. So you got to always aim yourself at the middle. Now, the reason I talked about the US going into recession, I was actually quoting another economist, Danny Blanchfire, who's, who's good. And he's been looking at consumer confidence, and he can see consumer confidence in the US under pressure. If you were to look at the retail sales numbers, they all look pretty good. But the, the real reason I think the US is going to end up in trouble is really the political impasse and the increasing um, divide in the American political system. Uh, it just absolutely staggers me how we've got to this situation so quickly where the reds and the blues are like two different countries at each other's necks. And I just don't see a way of resolving that easily. And it would be foolish of me to tell to try because nothing is more guaranteed to garner hostility than telling an American how to run his country. It's very easy for Americans to tell us how to run our countries, but you can't tell a Yank how to run his. So I, I generally tend to um, you know, step back and just say, hey, um, the US is going to face a crisis. If it does not address its failing infrastructure, it will lose competitive edge. Now, at the moment, if there is a global crisis, a global market crash brought on by maybe a renewed pandemic recession, then the assets you want to hold will be US dollar assets, because today's logic is that the US remains the deepest and most liquid market, so you could continue to invest in treasuries. But long term, I think that's going to change. I'm not necessarily convinced that China is a screaming success either. And certainly the third block that would make sense would be Europe. But Europe has all kinds of crises of its own just now. So we could be talking about a very difficult, a very different multi-nation um, approach within a very short time frame if nations like the US run into deeper problem and the possibility of um, you know, democratic crisis, which I, I can certainly foresee if I put my political analyst hat on. Um, but um, 
yeah, the world is definitely changing when it comes to the U.S. And I know you you focus on markets, economy, and and finance, but I always find it useful to get uh, people's opinions on, on uh, geopolitics, which we talk a lot about uh, on this podcast. But you know, I want to get your thoughts, perhaps, on geopolitically. What's your opinion? How you view? Uh, you know, we, we have this U.S. China rivalry that's kind of dominating uh, the news today uh a lot of a lot in the west are getting aggressive against china and you know on top of that we have threads such as the us eu relationship with with russia we've got these uh, you know nord stream pipeline conflicts the fro frozen conflicts that we have in ukraine an aggressive uh, turkey that's expanding and the new new great game in central asia post afghanistan and so forth you know for you what what is most interesting geopolit geopolitically how do you evaluate you know what's what's going on Yeah, that's a fascinating question. You know what? The, the world is an extremely complex place. And, uh, you know, the, the old simplicities of uh, U.S. hegemony have gone by the wall completely. Um, there, there's a couple of very interesting things going on. And let's start off with Europe. Uh, Europe has, you know, I, I, and this is really a, a very interesting situation in Europe, where Europe is a very... A uh, lovely place to live. Everyone's really nice, and we're all really concerned about the environment. And we all want the world to save itself by going green. So a couple of years ago, uh, and I don't, dis I, I, I don't fault Greta Thunberg. I think she's excellent. But the result is everyone's hopped on board what we call the ESG bandwagon: environmental, social, and governance. Now, making for a better society and ensuring companies are well governed to make that happen is critical, but no one pays attention to that. All they pay attention to is the environment. So we stopped investing in uh, anything fossil fuel. And the result was we very quickly realized that we're going to transit from a fossil fuel-based economy into an alternatives fuel-based economy. We are actually still going to need gas for the next 50 years while that transition to wind farms, solar power, hydroelectric, and nuclear happens. It doesn't help that the Germans decided to ban nuclear uh, because Merkel needed green votes. Um, you know, so we got ourselves into a bit of a mess. But the fact is there's been uninvest, underinvestment in Europe's uh, gas reserves, and we now have to import them from Russia. Just at a time as we are being asked to join the alliance of the great and the good, to stop the Russians misbehaving. Now, Vladimir Putin is not a fool. He sees this as marvelous opportunity to break down the alliance against him. And he is going to go to each country one by one and say, why should I sell you my gas? And the cost of selling gas, well, we don't know what it's going to be, but it's going to be different for every country. And you can see as a result of that, tensions arising in Europe about who is going to break first and do the first deal with the Russians. And this is happening at the same time as you're seeing a lot of politically motivated pushback. Now, in Britain, we had our Brexit moment where, for all kinds of strange and wonderful reasons, we decided to back out of Europe. But, hey, that's the way we are. We've not been part of Europe ever. We'd rather be somewhere else. We, you know, Our history is defined by our incessant warfare with Europeans. Um, we don't like the thought of Europe being strong. That's why Britain has always interfered in the European uh, states. Um, but now you've got other countries who are also barging against European hegemony. 
And we can see that very clearly with Poland just now. So keep an eye on what goes on in Europe. That is important. China is a very different situation. I think there's something of a power game, a power struggle still underway in China. Uh, President Xi is still trying to ensure that his new faction continues to dominate politics. And that's one of the reasons you've seen his clamp down on the economy. The last thing that China really wants is the distraction of any uh, Cold War or even a hot war with the Western alliance. But then who's going to follow America into a war with China? Um, yes, we've got a new alliance that is signed between Australia, the UK and the States. But that's, you know, that's early, early stages. Far too many European countries are looking at the way that Trump handled NATO and they're saying, mm, you know, that's an unreliable friend. Um, we're not going to put ourselves out for the US because they're not going to put themselves up for us. And then, of course, there's what's going on in the US itself. I mean, we don't know what US alliances are going to look like in four years' time if we see a change in government, whether that's Trump part two or mini Trump. We know we just don't know. Uh, so there's just a lot of geopolitical uncertainty going on. And that's only the three big blocks. If you actually look at the focus into the minor areas, uh, clearly you mentioned the great game in Afghanistan. I actually think that's a lesser problem than the other one you mentioned, which is Turkey. You know, how does Turkey develop? Does Turkey decide to go the route down to go down the route uh, towards uh, some kind of quasi-fascism, or does it become more market-orientated and engaged again with the rest of the world? It's it's going to be interesting to see what happens. You mentioned uh, Europe, and you know you touched on one of my questions I had as well on the ESG uh, score. But you, you wrote a fantastic piece on the European Central Bank back in July, and how Lagarde's plan uh, is to boost the ECB's political relevance by effectively yeah. placing it at the center of European climate change uh, policy. Oh, yeah, that was a, a brilliant monetary coup. And there are some other analysts that I, that, that I admire, such as Richard Werner, who has stated that the ECB is going, uh, as well like you, for a power grab. But he was saying uh, separately, one of the object objectives uh, is to eliminate competing commercial banks because of their desire to roll out this digital uh, euro now. Um, and so you've you mentioned as well, and you, you referenced it in today's piece about Poland's PM warning of a EU deprived of democratic control. So what are your thoughts on the ECB, their power grab um, and this idea of a, a digital euro? But my fear is that, you know, this could segue into kind of like a cashless society and then we can end up in some type of Chinese style uh, social credit uh, system. Fascinating. I mean, I, I think one of the, you know, you, you, thanks for referencing the piece I wrote about the ECB's monetary coup. And what they did there was um, basically every single European country has to abide by debt targets that are agreed as part of their membership of the European Union and the Euro, the Euro as a currency. And that's made it very difficult for some nations, especially Italy and Spain, uh, to go to the markets to borrow money to reflate their economies through the pandemic. So the ECB had the brilliant idea of effectively neutralizing debt by launching debt in its own name as the European Union and then distributing that money to each individual nation. Now, 
Previously, the Germans have refused to do that because the last thing any German politician wants is the idea that German workers are going to be subsidizing French government pensions. Uh, so that was just an absolute no-no. But now the Germans have finally let it happen. And what's really fascinating is now that the ECB controls the purse strings distributing money for fiscal policy, the first thing they said to Poland when Poland said, well, we are no longer going to make Europe the preeminent setter of our laws, is the ECB turned around and said, well, in that case, you're not going to get your share of the pandemic emergency money that we've raised, therefore blocking Poland from the markets. Now, that is a sign of what's going to come. And it won't just be Poland that has to kowtow, it will be every other nation. Effectively, monetary control is going to be with the ECB. And you know what? Is that a good thing or a bad thing? If you're a great believer in democracy, it's probably a bad thing because there are very few democrat, real democratic controls on the ECB. Um, it's really the, the whole European Union was always seen as an indirect dumping ground for failed national politicians. And until we see that, that we have direct representation into the European Union, it will remain so. I also wanted to touch on cryptos. You've got a strong opinion about it. Uh, I know half of my audience uh, aren't going to be happy, but uh, there was an, another excellent piece you wrote back in May uh, on crypto and Bitcoin titled Pop Goes the Weasel, where you write, quote, the crypto end phase is full on, but we'll likely see further incredible moves as the last greater fools are enticed into thinking it's a buying uh, opportunity. The reality is it's a nothing. It never was. It's not even a tulip bulb. Ultimately, crypto in its current unregulated unre form is a trap, end quote. Uh, you have a deep-seated resistance to crypto. I'm neutral on it. I'm, I'm neither a hater nor a, a lover. What's your take on the crypto space um, and why uh, there such resistance? Um, it's, it's not fair to say that I'm not a... I, I'm certainly not a believer, but neither am I a complete heretic either. I, I can actually see some very very useful and good ways that we could use um, uh, blockchain technology to create useful types of tradable cryptocurrencies or, or crypto assets, let's call them that way. Um, I certainly believe that things like um, the pure speculative nature of products like Bitcoin and non-fungible tokens, I mean, if people believe in them, then by all means, go and trade them. Go and be happy in your ownership of this thing that means diddly squat. Go ahead and do whatever you want with it. And if you believe it's worth $62,000 for a Bitcoin, you pay that. I don't, so I won't. But if you want to sell it at $62,000, you're going to have to hope that someone else thinks it's worth $62,500. And one day someone's going to say, hey, the emperor's standing there bollocks naked. <laughs> so, But the technology that's been explored uh, and the, the, the mechanisms by which crypto can work have actually got me thinking about some very interesting uses. Uh, and this actually goes back to the climate change thing that we we're talking about earlier. One of the big problems has been establishing um, a proper way of carbon pricing. Now, what if we could create almost like a cryptocurrency backed by carbon credits? 
Now, you'd have to establish a mechanism for doing that, but you could do that via an inspection process, but also through the blockchain to create a fungible green crypto asset representing carbon credits. And, and that's something that I've got a number of people working at at the moment, uh, which I think could be very interesting. But, uh, you know, when it comes to car, you know, with, if, if I can just show you something here on my marvelous little phone, if I can just find it, um, and, and this will convince all your crypto supporters that I'm not the worst person in the world. Somewhere I have a Coinbase account. Believe me, it's here. Uh, oh, yeah, here we go. And I, I haven't opened this for weeks. So <laughs> it could be it could be up, it could be down. Hey, there we go. I got 142 quid in my Coinbase account. I know that there was 220 in it a few weeks ago, and I haven't touched it. I bought two uh, diverse crypto assets, Cardano, and hang on, what was the other one? Ethereum, yeah. So Cardano and Ethereum, and uh, they've you know been extremely volatile and amusing to flash up when I'm having interviews like this. But do I believe? No. All right. Uh, so I mean, you, you ultimately think I've kind of had this thought uh, as well that it'll come back down to earth uh, the prices of, of Bitcoin and such. Yeah, of course it'll come down to earth. But then when it does, somebody clever is going to jump in and say, "Hey." I'm only talking to you because you're really clever and you're going to understand that. No one else in the room is going to understand just how much this piece of broken coat hanger is worth. This piece of broken coat hanger, you know what? It's going to go through the roof in value, but only you and I understand that. So why don't you buy it from me for $100? That's what drives cryptocurrency. It's shysters, snake oil salesmen. Adverts on Facebook, it's all bollocks. And if I'm allowed to use that. <laughs> no, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and uh, just kind of to segue back into gold, which you talk about precious metals. A uh, uh, number of my past guests uh, on finance have been talking about uh, commodities and the commodity super cycle. Uh, how, do you, how do you feel about you know, gold, silver, uh, and that sort of thing now? Well, I, I, I still regard gold to be gold. I, I don't believe that, um, you know, Bitcoin is digital gold. It's not Bitcoin is Bitcoin. Gold is gold. And, you know, the entire amount of gold that's ever been mined would not even fill a single Olympic swimming pool. So, you know, it's got value um, because it is genuinely scarce. So where do we go? Um, you know, I, I will always keep some gold in my portfolio because in times of stress, it's likely to do quite well. What are some things people can do uh, and sectors people perhaps can look at to invest in to prepare for, uh, I guess, this turbulent environment we find ourselves in? Well, okay, that's an interesting question. Even if we get turbulence, remember my two key mantras, uh, that things are never as bad as you fear and never as good as you hope. So I think when we start to see bargains crop up in the market, that's when you want to start looking to buy. Don't need to be a genius to figure that out. What kind of assets? Well, you know what? Things that are properly valued. There are an awful lot of massively overvalued stocks. Now, I'm not saying Tesla make bad cars, but their stock price is ridiculous. So I wouldn't be buying Tesla stock. I'd love one of the cars, though. Um, you know, there are, there are other assets that are far more 
fairly valued in terms of what their future potential is going to be. And if SpaceX was a stock, I'm sure it'd be one of the ones, well, it would probably go straight away to the outrageously overvalued stage, but the right price, it would be a great one to hold because there is future in the stars. Um, meanwhile, I, I think all the noise about big tech needs to be examined. There is some big tech that is clearly vulnerable, like Facebook, but other big tech, for the meantime, you're going to see Apple continuing to sell loads and loads of goods. So you really got to take views on where things are going to go and where their valuations stand. And, and that's always tough. All right. Any final thought for us? Well, I sort of mentioned my, um, my market mantras, you know, which is, you know, to repeat it again, never as bad as you fear, but never as good as you hope. But there's another key one as well, which is always remember that the market is just an enormous voting machine. It sums up the way that everybody thinks. But there are times when I feel that it is really a nasty, cruel, pernicious beast with but one objective, and that's to inflict the maximum amount of pain on the maximum number of participants. So in that thought, I'll leave you. <laughs> All right. Uh, you're on Twitter at, at Bill underscore Blaine and your website is morningporridge.com. Is there any, yeah. other, uh, any other website or project we should know about? Well, no, um, I, I, I do actually run what we call alternative assets for shard capital in London. Um, uh, so I do have a day job being a proper financier and investor. And of course, I do have the morning porridge and you can subscribe for the princely sum of £10 a month and get my unique viewpoints for, well, you can actually get them free if you read LinkedIn or uh, you subscribe at my bronze level service. If you subscribe for silver, you get it for a tenner a month sent directly, fresh, hot, warm to your email. All right, everyone, be sure to sign up to Bill Blaine's Morning Porridge. Uh, thanks for being on Geopolitics and Empire. I enjoyed it enormously, mate. Cheers. I hope you enjoyed this Geopolitics and Empire podcast interview. The website is geopoliticsandempire.com, and I encourage you to sign up for the free email list through which you can receive an update of every new podcast, as well as a long list of key news headlines once a week. We're being heavily censored. YouTube has deleted some of our videos, and we currently have one strike. Patreon has terminated our account. Facebook has restricted our page, and Reddit has been the leading posts. Our favorite social media channels are Telegram and Twitter. The best places to watch the podcast beyond YouTube are on Odyssey, BitChute, and Brighteon. The best places to listen to the podcast are on SoundCloud, Apple, Spotify, Google, or on any other podcast app. To help keep this podcast alive, leave a review on Apple Podcasts and wherever else, subscribe to all our platforms, and leave a donation if possible via Subscribestar, PayPal, Bitcoin, or Ethereum. You can also find us on MeWe, Minds, Gab, Float, VK, LinkedIn, and Instagram. Thanks for listening.